Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show. Today, we're examining the dramatic push by conservative activists to dismantle diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in public universities, a movement rooted in more than just policy, but in the core values of our educational system. Uncovered by the New York Times, this narrative reveals a stark contrast between public advocacy and private beliefs, challenging us to defend the true soul of education in America. From Texas to the national stage, this isn't just a debate about policy. It's a battle for the ideals we champion in our higher learning institutions. Join us for this episode as we talk about the hard questions and explore the intricate balance between diversity and academic freedom. All this and more on today's Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show. Today, as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Ravi Gupta, national traveler, international traveler, man of mystery. How are you doing, Ravi? Can't complain. How's everything going in Minnesota? It's going good. You always say you can't complain. You have nothing to complain about, Ravi. I don't. <laughs> Just for the record. <laughs> How do you know? How do you know I have nothing life to complain? Life is good. You live, ch- you live a charmed life, man. So I can see why you would never complain. Well, listen, as always, at the beginning of the segment, I want to get your your take on a couple of news items. Uh, so let's do a quick news roundup. First of all, Florida bans dictionaries. Jed Lugum's popular information, which is a substack that I like to read, reported last week that the Incambia County School District in Florida has removed over 2,800 books, including dictionaries and classics from its libraries in response to Florida's law, the HB 1069. The law allows for the removal of books depicting sexual conduct. The sweeping removals influenced by a high school teacher named Vicki Baggett, who has been responsible for many of the book challenges. I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 or so book challenges that she has done. She is the one who instigated it and followed to an emergency rule, which led to the closure of many school libraries at the start of the school year as they removed materials from ranging from Stephen King and Agatha Christie to, as I said, dictionaries. So, Ravi, what say you about how far out of hand or unintended the consequences can be for some of these laws that we pass that are basically culture war stunts, but they have wide ranging implications? Yeah, let me read this. Let me see if I can pull this checklist up. So, this is HB 1069, the Florida legislation. It says it defines sexual conduct, means actual or simulated sexual intercourse, deviant. I'm not mispronouncing that. It says deviant, not deviant. Sexual intercourse, <laughs> sexual bestiality, masturbation, sadomasochistic abuse, actual or simulated lewd exhibition of genitals, actual physical contact with persons clothed or unclothed genitals. You get the picture. I can go down. Um, and it gives a checklist. Identify, and this is a checklist for sort of activists to go out there and find these things. Identify adult and young adult titles through title-wise analysis report. Look the book over, read jacket summary, check common sense media, read through parents need to know, check sex, romance, nudity, check violence and scariness. Yeah. So it basically gives you a checklist and what this has yielded in just one county that you talk about. So you mentioned a couple of things that were banned. It also banned eight different encyclopedias, two thesauruses, five different editions of the Guinness Book of World Records, the biographies of Beyonce, Lady Gaga, Oprah Winfrey, Nicki, Nicki Minaj, Thurgood Marshall. Uh, those are all locked in storage. <laughs> the the uh, Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank, The Adventures and Memoirs of, of Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie, Atlas Shrug. Oh, yeah. So this is the funny part of it. It also swept up two popular conservative books, Atlas Shrugged and two books by O'Reilly. Yeah, this is just a waste of time and, and at best is a waste of time and obviously is 
could be quite worse than that. And I think these conservative activists and legislators have lost their mind. I mean, that's my take. You know, I think based upon what we're going to talk about in the media this show today, I have always treated these as one-offs, like random one-offs. But when you start to see that they're part of a bigger plan and that they are not random and that Florida is a testing ground for the type of institutional installation that the right wants to put into place nationally, these things become more scary. Like it's fun to pick on Florida. It's fun to talk about, oh, they're banning libraries. It's less fun when you start thinking about, oh, they want to nationalize this. This is going to go beyond Florida. Uh, and we'll talk about later. Well, can I just mention one interesting thing about this, which is, you know, the don't say gay bill is all about ostensibly, right, in Florida about grooming, right? Like this is what they're saying. They don't want teachers out there pushing their views. And Ron DeSantis has said many times he's against educational indoctrination. And I know this is a good segue to what's happening next, but this one teacher, and this is a teacher, not just a parent, who has been pushing all these bans. Last year, the same newsletter that you talked about, Popular Information, reported that current and former students accused this teacher, Baggett, Vicky Baggett, of being openly homophobic in class, and allegedly Baggett told a 10th grade student that her sister, who had a girlfriend, was faking being a lesbian for attention because, quote, nobody's born that way. Now, that seems like indoctrination to me. So I, I take a different angle on that. I think, yes, so yes, you're right. <laughs> yeah, you're zagging today, Chris. No, but the thing that I take a different, um, the, the thing that I find important about what you just said, though, is that how a crackpot like that could be emboldened by a law to have any power whatsoever. Like, like we have right. given- Over everybody else. Over everybody else. So you have a school district full of people from all different places in life. They have all different kind of racial backgrounds and- and, you know, re religions and whatever else going on. But what this law has done uh, and what it's doing nationally is it's empowering some of the dumbest people actually to have and some of the biggest crackpots to have an overweening say on what the rest of us do. I'm a, a lot of the books that you mentioned today, I, I probably wouldn't like myself. Many of those books I wouldn't like myself. As a matter of fact, some of them I just find outright, outright boring. Beloved's a great example by Toni Morrison. People love that book and they think that it's so amazing and it's terrible to me and it's a terrible movie. That doesn't mean that I, I want to stop anybody else from reading it or having access to it. Um, so anyways, let's move on to the next uh, item because this one's for you and it's for me. I'm interested in some things that I don't have enough intellectual heft to, to, to decipher for myself. So this next one, actually, I'm leaning on you to be a science-based person who understands some of this means. I got roped in by the headline. The headline is, scientists believe they've unlocked consciousness and it connects the entire universe. This is a story in Popular Mechanics. Reports that scientists are making cool discoveries about consciousness, which is how we think and are aware of ourselves and the world. They're building on the theory from the 1990s, which says our thoughts might come from tiny quantum actions happening in our brain cells. And some of the cool things about this discovery, this is like, it, it got me so in the weeds because it reminded me of how much I don't know about science and these things. Here's some of the exciting things about this. So says the, uh, the article, quantum biology. This is the idea that even living things like plants use tiny quantum bits in ways uh, we didn't think were possible, especially in warm living environments like our brains. Does this mean plants can talk? Does this mean that plants have feelings? Does this mean, what does this mean? There's something sentient going on in plants. 
Uh, I won't go through them all, but there's also some really cool things about what this says about brain cell research and what it says about the way that we see uh, see how consciousness works in our brain and connects us to other things and connects us to tiny particles everywhere in the universe. I had to read this like article multiple times over and I'll tell other people to go read it. If you're interested in cool things, but you don't know a ton about these, the, the article is called Scientists Believe They've Unlocked Consciousness and It Connects the Entire Universe by popular mechanics. Ravi, you're, you're a science brain person. Does any of that stuff in there seem cool to you? Like any of that, like, do you, do you, are you turned on by any of this? I don't think I fully understand it, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> the people who understand quantum physics seem to be excited about it, but it's definitely above my pay grade. It, it feels like something that did catch my attention in school many years ago, where a teacher said to us, like, everything is connected and you don't know it and you don't see it, but you're breathing some of the same atoms that, that Jesus and George Washington did. Or it, it was just some way of unifying the entire universe together into a theory. And I never got hold of it. So I'm just telling people I'm listening to it right now. But I'm deeply, deeply interested in these things. As a person who loved the movie The Matrix and can quote probably every scene of The Matrix to you, I know that these things are really cool, but I just don't always know what they mean. But I am going to keep pursuing these science articles that come up in my feed now because they're, more, they're just more interesting than some of the other stuff that I read. So the last news item, Taylor Swift is not just a pop icon. She's now something that you can study in college. The University of California, Berkeley is now offering an elective course titled Artistry and Entrepreneurship. Taylor's version, focusing on Taylor Swift's career. This unique class uh, chosen by public health major Ale Perez explores Swift's journey in the music industry, her challenges as a woman artist, and her successful business strategies. What do you think, Ravi? Do you think this is pop culture leading into education in a way that feels a little facile? Or do you think, no, there's just many different ways we can learn about things. And if we can learn it through a pop icon, then let's learn it. I think studying successful people is generally a good strategy, and she's not just a an entertainer. She's definitely an, an incredible business person. I have questions about whether that fills an entire class. You know, <laughs> like I I don't think I would fill an entire class with any entrepreneur. You've like that's not a knock a against her. You've never yeah, sat at a party I, I, with a Swifty and had them tell look, you everything about her. <laughs> oh, I know, I, I know. I just I'm not sure. This needs to be a class. I, I guess I understand what this, the school is doing. They're trying to like, you know, put a little sexy class on the, the the syllabus. So I get it. But I just think I, I, if it were just artistry and entrepreneurship without the colon at Taylor's version, I think I would have, it would have made more sense to me. It just feels like it, a whole class of that I just have questions about. I can't name probably three Taylor Swift songs. Maybe I could if I tried really hard, but I can't really tell you that many more about what she's done. I can tell you more about her business practices because that's shown up in the news to me many times. And she appears to be a gifted entrepreneur in a way that like other competitors like Beyonce and others, they're all great. They all have talent, but she has some crazy business acumen and has done some some things that make her the top of the game. I mean, her last tour was the largest grossing tour of all time. It was the first one to do a billion dollar in receipts. And it was a tour de force. And her business practices behind the scene on that are something that I don't think gets enough attention. But anyways, I'm probably with you. I wouldn't take the class. I would take one on Prince, though. 
like if they had one about Prince, because I think there's a lot to learn from Prince and his business practices too. I think he was the first in a lot of this stuff that Taylor is doing now, like owning your own masters and owning your your music. So that's some Gen X Minnesota bullshit Stop right it. there. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Stop but it. you know, it is your show. It is the Citizen Stewart <laughs> show. So go on. It's the truth. Uh, anyways, well, let's dive into our main discussion today. And we started, you know, at the top to talk a little bit about what's unfolding in Texas. Uh, you know, I said that it's a saga that's not just about policy, but it's about the core values that define our educational institutions. And this is what it's about. There's a group of conservative activists and academics linked to a former aide to Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. And they have a mission. Uh, what was their target? The Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Programs, DEI, as they're often talked about at public universities and across the state. Now Texas A&M, the college there, among other well-known institutions, find itself in the crosshairs of the campaign. Legislation was passed swiftly in May, effectively banning these DEI programs from their public higher education institutions in Texas. The move didn't just ripple through the hallways of academia. It sent shockwaves across the nation. But the New York Times article about this goes further than talking about it as a local thing in Texas. They peel back the layers on the story and they do an exhaustive investigation about the story behind this. And they're, they got to look into what the playbook is really about. And the playbook is really about a movement that is going across many states, at least 20. And in the playbook, it's, a, it's about a larger narrative about American politics. There's a, definitely an element of it that was a backlash to like Black Lives Matter and critical race theory. But we've heard about all those battles. We haven't heard behind them all, there's a much bigger plan. There's something called the 2025 playbook. And if you go and you read it, it is a radical document about what can be done in the first 180 days of a Republican presidency this fall that would gut all of the major institutions in the United States and replace all of the personnel of those institutions with predetermined personnel that they have in a database right now who have all signed on to an agreement about what the country should look like and what they should get rid of and what they should keep, but they would do it all by fiat. And they like put it under the, the, the banner of taking down the administrative state, but it's nothing short of a installation of the thing we always talk about, a dictatorship. And it's also putting a lot of meat on the bone of this thing when we constantly talk about, oh, our democracy's in trouble. Or, you know, we have an existential threat. We don't know what that means, really. We say it over and over again. But this is what it means. There is a plan, literally, to reverse uh, many of the things right now that we have gained over years, over decades, that conservatives always wanted to get rid of, things like civil rights. And if you think I'm overstating that part, this all leads to the Civil Rights Act of 1965. That's the thing that they want to overturn. So while we're arguing about DEI and critical race theory, the real target, the real goal is to reverse the Civil Rights Act of 1964. With that, let's jump in. Ravi, that's all good news, right? This is all happy stuff. You know, I, I like to do a, a show of happy things. You're in politics. You watch a lot of what we talk about. Why aren't we talking more about what the real plan is and less about kind of the theatrics around democracy and, you know, these one-offs like DEI and critical race theory? What's wrong with the left and what's wrong with Democrats that they can't see a bigger plan? And why don't they have a 2025 playbook that is this robust? Like I, I, people listening, Google it and go read it. That, that's what I'll tell you. Just go read the, the whole thing. It is so robust. And there's like 30 or 40 organizations that contributed to it. 
with a lot of heavy hitters in it. What's wrong with the left, Robbie? <laughs> yeah, I think, well, I hesitate to answer that because you always tell me I'm too hard in the left. So I want to stay focused on the right here. No, I'm ready for it now. <laughs> well, I, I think this article, this is an article by Nick uh, Confessore in the New York Times, and he obtained 5,000 plus documents through public records requests. And I like I like a good leaked email story. You know, I like to read people's emails because it tells you what they're all about. And I think what's interesting here is I I believe that there is a place for good faith critiques of the various ways in which DEI plays out in schools, right? I do think this is important and anywhere. Like, I just think like that's part of a democracy. And I think there is a place for people who don't agree with some or all of DEI initiatives to, in good faith, try to grapple with those ideas. Uh, I don't think these people are those people <laughs> in reading it in reading it they cross so many lines and people can read it for themselves but they also admit in private that they don't want an unbiased education system so the the board chair of the Claremont Institute this guy Klingenstein said the following in an email he said in support of ridding schools of CRT the right argues that we want non-political education no we don't we want our politics. All education is political. And then Dr. Yenner, who's a, a senior leader in the Claremont Institute, uh, wrote back that an alternative vision of education must replace, replace the current vision of education. And there's just a lot of back and forths about this where they admit they want to be political. Uh, and they they get downright nasty at times, including ripping apart their own, like, quote unquote, people, like, like, right-wing figures like Peter Thiel, like where they, you know, Peter Thiel's ex-boyfriend committed suicide and they like were making fun of Thiel and this person. And basically I think the, the implication, alleged implication here is that they, you know, that they don't like gay people, Chris, surprise. Even if you're conservative, if you're gay, it, it trips a wire for them. I mean, these are just don't seem like great people. They don't seem above board. They don't seem on the level and it's an interesting read because you could just see how they talk through how they wanted to flip the narrative after 2020. And again, I think there is an important conversation to be had about some of these initiatives. I, I just think that these people are in bad faith. Yeah, I think what's so scary about it really is that they're, they want to make structural changes that affect all of our lives, right? Like it's one thing to have an argument nationally about, you know, I, I'm done with even like qualifying that I don't agree with Kendi on so many things. And I've savaged him. I've savaged Nicole Hannah-Jones. I've taken on the left a lot over the years, but that's actually not even the the, the problem anymore. The problem now if you read through the, the education section, which starts on page 319 of that playbook that was done in, in cooperation with Claremont and Heritage and others, if you read that section, it comes down to just a couple of things. They want to, one, eliminate the Department of Education. Uh, that's not a shocker. Two, divert a lot of money to private schools and churches. That's not a shocker. Three, end the possibility of any white children ever encountering any theories or any lesson plans or any teachers having to sit through any trainings that deal with cultural competency, like being competent culturally to be able to serve the kids uh, in there. It does something that stops a lot of people from doing something, and it only protects one group of people, and that's white people, like white kids. And it replaces a lot of what they call indoctrination. They call it gender ideology and wokeism and the fact that wokeism is even in credible kind of scholarship documents now 
is a testament to how far they've gone to basically just like take civil rights through the ringer and actually put it on its heels because they they have felt for many years that they were on their heels because of of, uh, the civil rights efforts that have been going on. But they want to replace all that stuff with like Hillsdale. They want to write it right into the law, the federal law, the national law, that their providers now, Liberty University and Hillsdale and others would start being kind of government sourced and funded and, and, you know, they would become the new institution. I don't think that it works in the long term, but I think in the short term, it causes a lot of problems. I think in the long term, so many people are going to be repressed by it, right? Like, it, you know, it'll repress gays and non-Christians and people who celebrate other faiths and people have different lifestyles, people who have a different interpretation of history. And it'll beat up on so many people that it eventually will go down. But man, this feels like, again, I keep going back to the plan is way more robust than anything I've seen. I was just looking through this, yeah, and this is housed, I think, through the uh, Heritage Foundation, I think, and obviously there's a lot of people, as you said, who signed on to it. So, just, I mean, they, they they do have basically every possible policy area, and on the education front, bullet point one, advancing educational freedom, and so basically this is saving. They talk about K twelve savings accounts managed by charitable nonprofits. Uh, they talk about education choice for federal children in quotes. Federal children. Congress has a special responsibility to children who are connected to military families, who live in the D- District of Columbia, or who are members of sovereign tribes. That's interesting. So basically, they're they're carving out special area of choice for those families. Restoring state and local control over education funding. And stop on that one just for a second, because I think it's really important. What they mean by that is block granting all of the money now that goes to states. And I think what's really important for people to understand what happens with block granting, just look at what happened with TANF, which is basically welfare money that goes to states. After it started becoming block granted, states started using it as a slush fund. So only a third of the money now makes it to actual recipients in the welfare system. It was much higher than that before, right? So you block grant all of this money and suddenly governors have the ability to not even use it for education anymore. They can start filling other gaps with this money. Sorry, I didn't mean to, to cut you off, but this block granting thing is important. Yeah, I'm looking through this. There's not a lot that's surprising in this education section. I don't think that there's a ton. I mean, it says, you know, there's, there's something. The Department of Education has created a shadow department of education in states across the country with more than 48,000 employees currently on staff in the state. And they're recommending getting rid of those 48,000. They would take the civil rights uh, work out of the Department of Education and put it in the Department of Justice, which I think is a way to kind of lessen actually the focus on educational injustice and put it in a larger bureaucracy where there's more ability to get rid of all of the guidance that the federal government has given states, like all of the Obama guidance around things like discipline and gender ideology, as they call it, all of that would be gone. Yeah. It's like a list of tons of regulations, very specific. So it even goes to the charter school program grant and talks about individual offices within the department of education, like where the statisticians are going to go when they get rid of the department of education. It's interesting. I mean, you are right that this vision is way more specific than anything you see on the left about on most, like this is just education. They go, they go department by department in this document. So they have, if you read the farming one around the, the department that handles farming and uh, what are they, the, the Department of Agriculture and whatever, each department they have this type of plan for, all of them. And it all revolves around getting rid of most of the people in them 
and lessening their ability to enforce anything like less enforcement of anything. I, I look at this honestly on the education front and I'm like, this is, this is the continuation of traditional right left debates for the most part. I mean, there's a little bit of gender ideology stuff in here and stuff, but it just feels like, I mean, they've been on this beat for a long, long time. Um, they have never won on this. And as a matter of fact, I was listening to a historian yesterday, an education historian who was talking, he basically said conservatives lost, lost the education debate in the 1930s. They actually had a big kind of show to try and take over the education system and they couldn't do it. So they put their efforts elsewhere. This would be something different though. This would be like a wholesale takeover of the entire apparatus in a way that they haven't wanted to do before. It includes a lot of things that you already know. They, of course, it, it supports choice. So of course, it supports getting as many kids into faith-based schools as possible uh, and getting as many people out of the traditional system as possible. But for the ones that stay within the traditional system, it also puts a lot of restrictions on what they can be taught and what their teachers can be taught and held accountable for. And a lot of it is really just around civil rights. Um, they want to change Title IX. They want to change Title VI. They want to get rid of the civil rights guidance that has been developed over many years around things like discipline. And, and again, I think I've said this before in our show, and I think I've even said it today, which is these things are different when you just argue about them. They become different when you start trying to change structures, right, and implement. And their thing, this is what should scare people on the left so much, is this is a good plan that if they were to take over, that they could do in 180 days. In the beginning of this document, it says... The majority of what you can get done, you can get done in the first 180 days as a president. It's when you have the most bully pulpit mandate kind of ability to disrupt the system. So this plan is organized. It's not like a lot of random stuff. This is like an organized, very good plan of how you take over the United States in the first 180 days and get them their entire wish list. You know why Democrats don't have this, Ravi, is because Democrats and the left are weak. They would never do something this loud, outrageous, and bold. And the way to know it is that you have a president right now who is sleeping through his presidency. He's getting great things done. I mean, like, you know, lots of stuff. But he doesn't have a big plan or a big vision. He definitely doesn't have a document like this. And neither does the next generation of Democrats. <laughs> Where are they? Yeah, what's it? There are 90 conservative, over 90 conservative organizations signed on to this, and these are like pretty significant organizations, many of them. Now, I had a good interview last week with David from, from The Atlantic, and his argument was about the Republicans versus Democrats, is that the Republicans are a homogenous coalition for the most part with very aligned interests, whereas the Democratic Party is a big tent with diverse interests, diverse people, and it includes much greater diversity of all kinds. And that's part of what makes it hard for Democrats to have such documents. Just think about you and I, for instance, charter schools and all that kind of stuff, right? Like if Democrats came up with a document like this, it would for sure talk about like banning charters or whatever, and then you and I would be alienated, right? So they like, this is a problem Democrats have is they don't have it's a strength and a weakness of the Democratic coalition is that they don't have that uniformity. The second thing is, and there are tons of studies about this, like people who are attracted to the Republican Party are much more likely to believe in more hierarchical think thinking, whereas Democrats tend to be way more skeptical of that kind of hierarchy. And so it creates issues for the coalition. So mm -hmm. I, I do think that there are like 
decent explanations as to why this is the case, like why you don't see something like this from Democrats. I've made that argument before, and I have to go past it now because I have to think towards like solution and how do you organize a resistance. So it is so true that the if people get mad on their side of fence when we say that. It's basically when I say, you don't say this, but when I basically say that it's a white grievance, white race, white supremacy game plan. This is like late stage white supremacy trying to extend its life by taking over and hacking the major institutions to put a virus in those institutions that works in their favor. That's literally what this is. And that makes it easier for you to be maniacally kind of like monofocused, right? Whereas what you just said is true. We have, you know, we have Muslims and gays and Jews and all kinds of stuff going on in the resistance that makes it harder. But I will say this, and I tweeted this out yesterday. Who's the guy for UAW? Sean Bain. It's funny watching him give speeches in the heartland, especially to all kinds of guys that have all kinds of different backgrounds. But when it comes to their their jobs and their union stuff and the economy, you know, a lot of them are United Auto Workers. So not a lot of them, they all are United Auto Workers or whatnot. I see some promise that they have always said that they have in that type of unionism in that. Like for instance, right now, the UAW is calling for international changes to foreign policy. You know, they're going after Biden, even though they just endorsed Biden. I do think that there's a lot of power in that type of organization because it's class-based organization and everybody has an interest in a job in Medicare for all, in the ability to not go broke because you get a medical bill, the ability to kind of just have access to a fair life, to a good life. That I think is more unifying than a lot of what we fight over uh, in the resistance and we better get good at it like quickly because it's the only thing that beefs up the numbers to include some of those folks that would be vulnerable to the Trumpism. And I think our job right now is to reduce the number of Trump pansies. So whatever we can do to get some of them back in the fold. And I think unionism and definitely class-based warfare would, would be the thing that does it. Think about this, though, this thing that I said earlier. Are you moved by this at all when I say that the real goal here is to undo the Civil Rights Act? Uh, if you look at the <laughs> my old party, the Libertarian Party, if you look at their New Hampshire, the, the New Hampshire Libertarian Party's um, Twitter feed. They actually went on a long rant about why the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was the worst thing that ever happened for freedom in the United States. And it's actually a pretty robust, robust right wing saying the quiet part out loud type of thread. If you go look for it, you'll find it. Um, and that I saw got written about in the Beacon, the Washington Beacon, you know, some, some conservative press as that's the real goal. Like the real goal isn't all this fighting, you know, about whether or not kids can use the bathroom school by school. The real fight is just to get rid of all the protections that any people they, they don't like have. Would it scare you more in terms of into uniting and unifying with people you disagree with if you thought that the real goal was to overturn the Civil Rights Act? Yeah, I, and I don't need scaring to unify. I mean, I've been unified for years. I mean, even coming out of 2016, you know, 2016 through 2020, I even helped elect a lot of candidates who hate charter schools, for example, in part because I felt like I needed to at least walk away for a time period from my strongly held convictions on education, or at least not let them stand in the way of other collaboration that I thought was important. And I continue to open that door. Like when I, in my work for Arena, for example, I don't, there's no educational litmus test, you know, like some of my closest collaborators don't agree with me on on education issues, and I think that's fine. Yeah, I mean, they, they, the the vision of the world that these folks have 
I would say, especially the Claremont folks, like as I read this article is, you know, I, I think it's deeply unpopular. And I think what you see is a, a different, their, their goals in private are much different than what they pretend that they're doing in public. There's some good background in there. If you read the document through, it talks about how the Heritage Foundation played a pivotal role when Reagan came into office of doing the same thing with him, like providing him with a document that was very close to this. And it was Heritage that came to him and said, hey, we've got this plan for you. It's document. It's a document that kind of can help you with the playbook here. And he took to a lot of it, like deregulation and you know changes. I lived through that part of transition. And boy, the transition from Carter to Reagan once you got into the middle of the Reagan presidency, it was maddening in that he was so charismatic and popular, but he was doing such crazy things. <laughs> like he was super charismatic and super like he was he's the opposite of Trump. He was a likable person opponent. He was a likable opponent that like you kind of had to like give him a little bit of ground. Now, some people might remember this differently because he was doing such crazy stuff that many of them probably couldn't have a good attitude about him. But he was so dangerous in that in the middle of his presidency, he had done so much to reverse kind of like poverty programs and things that help folks, but still he was so popular. Uh, and he was just, he was so good. He was smooth. Unlike Trump, like I, I never got the feeling from Reagan that he was marshalling people to come after me in the way that, that Trump is signaling that he would do. But anyways, the point of what I was just saying was Heritage went to Reagan too, and they see that as one of their shining moments in their history. And they have that opportunity again to go to a president and say, you're our guy. We got you here. You owe us. This is the plan. Do it. You don't, you're not even going to understand much of it. As a matter of fact, you probably won't. You're a useful idiot. But we're going to give you a plan as a useful idiot. And you're just going to sign. Your pen is just going to go on it. We've already got it all figured out. Don't think too hard. Don't break your brain. We understand all the departments. Here's the thing. The thing about them having a database of employees that they've already vetted and cleared for all of these departments and these jobs is a level of organization. They are a staffing agency now. <laughs> they are a right-wing staffing agency. They are leaving nothing to chance. Not only are we asking you to get rid of people, we have the people that you need to replace already in a database. That's crazy. That almost makes me feel like we lost. Like it's all, it's all a done deal. Well, you could submit your, I'm looking at this website right now. You can submit your application now, Chris. So if you're looking for a next gig, I'm going to click on this and see what kind of questions they ask. Request a one-time passcode. My digital record would be messing me up because I probably would switch teams if, if I thought I still had a chance. <laughs> 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 and if I thought I still could save myself. But here's how I save myself. I live in Minnesota, which I like to call South, Southern Canada. And if I need to, the reason I still do live in Minnesota is because I need a straight path to, to Canada. Like if I needed to get out of here quickly, and people think I'm kidding when I say that, it could get so bad here, not for everybody, just for some of us, that we would be in the middle of a really bad situation before we would know it. And then we would have to live through it until the pendulum swings back the other way again. I'm looking at this website. It is really interesting. So February 1st, 2023, so a year ago, Project 2025 announces the launch of the Presidential Administration Academy. So on-demand training sessions as a resource for those hoping to serve in the next administration. Through workshops, seminars, online videos, mentorship, participants will be qualified and ready to use the tools of the federal government to best serve the American. If you go back maybe about 15 years ago, maybe longer than that, there was something called Progressive Majority. 
and Progressive Majority turned into, I believe, another organization. And the Wellstone folks were part of that. And they did a very good job of training uh, candidates, training campaign managers, training staff to win elections and how to understand math and how to understand uh, what it takes to win. And they were very good at it. And they won a lot of elections. Them and SEIU ran my school board campaign when I ran for school board. I didn't really think I was going to win, but watching them like a machine, they were so disciplined. I have watched now the right side of the aisle figure this out. The Leadership Institute trained school board members. You just mentioned one that their academy now is training folks. All the Moms for Liberty people and all that are trained people. They're coming through some of these groups. What is it? The Independent Women's Forum and others. They're all now recruiters and trainers. They're training people and finding people. That's a smart plan. That was like really smart. Like (laughs) you can't win by just going out there and saying crazy stuff and being a, a mouthpiece. You actually have to have some level of organization. So you know more about this than I do. What happened to what happened to training on the left, right? I mean, we do it. We do it for campaigns. We actually have thought about at Arena, we're the biggest training operation for campaigns. Uh, this is making me actually wonder. By the way, the book is sold out. I just went to try to buy the book, The Mandate for Leadership. That's amazing. I don't know how many copies they, they made. We well, can get the PDF online, folks, just, just so you know, if you want to. Yeah. All right. I actually do want to read this. I mean, I do think it's an interesting read. You know, the one thing you can't accuse them of is like, I mean, the Claremont people try to conceal a lot, but these guys aren't concealing their agenda. That is fascinating. Yes, they're not because it's available and you can go and get it. But have you seen much about this in the news? Do you think the average person knows that this is the plan beneath, behind the facile things we say about democracy being in trouble and all that? I think there's a there's a lot of ignorance. Yeah, I mean, I think I want to cover this more. I mean, I'm looking at this now. I want to read through all this. There are 30 chapters. Each one is a different agency or regulatory area. That's amazing. And they sold out. Yeah. <laughs> Democracy in trouble. I can see it on your face. You're, you're like saying your wheels are turning. Like this is a level of organization that's really. Well, I, I started to like, honestly, like. I don't mind that they're prepared. Like that's what, you know, there's political parties, you fight it out, you win and being prepared is important. Now, what Trump would do with this is a different story, right? Remember all this work that happened in the transition and all that. These guys are vetting people for this particular agenda, but Trump is going to be vetting people for loyalty and loyalty only. And I actually checked the section on the intelligence community because this is a proxy for loyalty to Trump. And it does have all this sort of greatest hits about Russia hoax and yada, 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 and, you know, deep state conspiracy type language. And yeah, so they, I think they're covering their ass on Trump loyalty stuff. So I imagine, I I don't think I'll be putting my resume on here, but I do think that they, (laughs) I do think that through that process, they will ask some questions about loyalty. Well, I mean, it's he just gave a speech not that long ago where he talked about the Hungarian strongman leader, and he said he's a strong man. Viktor Orban? Yeah. He's a, he's a strong man. He's a strong man. That's what we need, a strong man. That's the, Some of the things that come out of his mouth, I don't think people know that there's a bigger philosophy behind those things. They just sound like, he's a strong man. No, a strong man is a thing. 
Like it's a it's a specific type of political entity. It's a, a, a dictatorship or authoritarian. And to hear it just come out of somebody's mouth, like, you know, somebody who's already praised people like dictators, you know, worldwide, who might win, right? I think I've heard from you and others, like, it's almost starting to sound like you guys are saying it's inevitable that he's going to win. I don't think it's inevitable. I think he's the odds on favorite. And you don't have to take my word for it. The betting markets, the polls, right? Let's see what the betting markets say about Trump Biden right now. 43.5% to 33%. Well, you know, jail can happen before then, too. What What do you make of this Andrew Yang, Dean Phillips, Bill Ackman push to challenge Biden? Uh, is it good for competition? I'm look, I'm looking up Yang. I didn't know what Yang's role in this was, but let's see. Yeah, Yang's on board. Yang and and Bill Ackman are actually the main organizers for Dean right now. I see. Well, I mean, the Ackman stuff I can dispense with quickly. I don't I I don't have the background on Yang, but you know, Ackman. I mean, first of all, there are a lot of people who support Dean Phillips not because they want. Dean Phillips to be president, but they want to weaken Biden. I think there's a there are a lot of people who just want any alternative to Biden uh, within the Democratic Party, and I and I think that's fine. I mean, like this is what elections are about, and I and I don't love it when my Democratic friends get their back up so much that they feel like it's like offensive to run against Biden. Like that, I think is wrong. Now, Ackman, I put in a special category. Well, wait a second. Do you think they really think that it's offensive, or do you think they just think it's stupid? it's not actually going to lead to anything good. Like if they thought it was a winning strategy, like, you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about like the strategy is just dumb. Dean has no no chance of doing anything remarkable. And if he was, it would be great. I'm not a Dean Phil supporter, but I but his argument No one is. Well, there are some. <laughs> what they would say yeah. is that Dean Phillips was on record trying to find anybody to support within the Democratic Party to run in his place. And and that does seem to be true. So he wasn't like itching to just put himself out there, from what I understand. He just thinks that Biden shouldn't run again. And and also given the sort of actuarial realities, something could happen to Biden and we need an alternative. This is where the lack of agenda, that the right doesn't have this problem. You know, Trump is no spring chicken and he's starting to say really weird things. And he's obviously, even Nikki Haley said he's in decline and whatever, but they don't care. I mean, but Nikki Haley just won 43% in New Hampshire, you know, more than Dean Phillips got. And she's running against the former president of the United States. I'm pulling for, you know, but she looks like she's about two days from. from I mean, so is Dean Phillips though. Dean Phillips is not going to win. So you just mentioned that he doesn't have supporters. Well, and I don't think that Dean and Nikki are the same caliber of challenger, though. But what are we worried about? I'm not worried about any of this. I'm worried. I'm worried that he in his if you look at his feed, he is actually giving fodder to the other side when he drops out and he's going to be done and he's toast. He will have put into the world a left wing version of what the right is going to say. He's running on a complete campaign of ageism. That's all it is. He doesn't, he says, I agree with everything that Biden does. Like we have the same, I voted for him like 99% of the time on all his stuff. Like we're in total alignment. He's just old. Well, that can't be your whole campaign, right? Like, uh, um, because when you're done, that's the campaign that I think is going to persist in the world that other people are going to pick up on. I don't know. You and I have talked about this before. But I, I do think, a, I'm, again, I'm not a Dean Phillips supporter. I do think age <laughs> is a relevant conversation. And so, like, I think him bringing that up 
he's doing Biden a service, I think, because the American people care a lot about it. When you poll the general public and Democrats, the vast majority of both Democrats and the general public are very concerned with Biden's age. Now, people could say they're wrong about that or whatever, but people are concerned about it. So when Dean Phillips says this is really concerning to me, he's he's in step with the American people. When you when you look at breakdowns of voters where do you see it breaking down in terms of the age bands? I don't know. I mean, I've done a few episodes on this. I can Google it right now, but we've gone through the polling before. It's pretty sizable. Like, I'll, I'll pull it up over a second. Hasn't always been old people that vote the most? Well, I mean, they vote more on average, although right now millennials, I think, are the biggest voting block. They're the biggest voting block. But I mean, actually, in terms of reliable shower-uppers. Aren't old people the most reliable shower-uppers to every election? <laughs> I, and I and I I don't have this stuff at my fingertips, but if you give me a couple minutes, I could probably Google and pull it up. But my sense is even old people aren't as supportive of old people being president as much as you think. And I'll put it this way. Like if if I am 90 years old and I need open heart surgery, do I want a 90 year old doing that open heart surgery or do I want a 40 year old doing that open heart surgery? Well, first of all, Mr. Aegis, let me say my dentist is very old, like very old and has been at it for a very long time. But that's neither here nor there. I will say this, though. The reason why your entire Congress is old super old. And the reason why old people are gray-haired people are everywhere in the political power apparatus and universe and world is because old people are a voting block that we don't talk about a lot, but they do run way more. And we have a bigger, young people have a bigger number. There's more. But in terms of who shows up, like, what do you think is going to be the turnout, for instance, like, say, Gen Z turnout? First of all, I do think we talk about old people a ton. Politicians love talking about old people. It's why any reform to Social Security and Medicare retirement age and all this kind of stuff is off the table for both parties, really. Like, even Trump has been smacking down his own Republican opponents on this kind of stuff. And it's absurd, in my opinion, that it's even off the table because it by all accounts, Social Security is going to be insolvent and Medicare is in trouble. And nobody's saying take it away from the old people now. I'm saying for people like me, let's talk about maybe two, three year difference. We're all living longer anyway, right? When these, when these programs were created, people died within years on average of when these programs would kick in. Now they're living decades after the programs kick in. And so I think it's, a, it's helpful to even... You just lost your campaign. I don't care. I'm not running for president. All the old people just like quit. <laughs> but also those people will be fine. Like I'm saying the old people now we can exempt. Like the way you reform these programs is you let it kick in for a generation that's not quite thinking about it yet. Right. People like me, I'm not thinking about retirement. So if you were to say now I can, I have to wait till I'm 68 instead of 65 or whatever. I'm like, whatever. Sure. Like. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna vote against somebody today on that. And that's how you get the the program changed. I think that's the camel's nose into the tent of declining support of the country for its people. Uh, and I think kind of like the shift from pensions to 401ks actually is a good example. It's a learning lesson of how things sound good in the beginning. But there's a lot of people now who have 401ks where the fees are massive, the return on investment isn't what people thought it was, and it's not as sure as a pension. Uh, and there's just more old people living in poverty than there ever has been. This is me talking as like a, you know, <laughs> a moving away from libertarianism type of guy, but it is making a lot more sense to me. But here's the thing. Bottom line is you can wring your hands about all the stuff that we talked about. What's the actual, what's the real play here? What's the real play? 
you're a good person. You're, you're, you're always smart about kind of strategies and tactics. So everything we just said is a problem. There's this great plan on the right. They're angling for a level of power that they've never had. And it's going to be systemic and, and organized power, institutional power that they've never had. Okay, good. It's a good plan. They have theirs. What would you say to people listening right now? Like actual things that people can do um, so that they aren't just whining and twiddling their thumbs or doom scrolling, but actually are getting involved in things that could make a difference. Well, I always think you start local, right? So if you live in a in an area that is a swing place in any way, whether it's swing for the presidential or for congressionals, then just focus on your neighbors. And the campaigns will eventually you know, build the ground games in all these different places, but build your own ground game, start your own organization, you know, form Hillites for Biden or whatever your politics are and begin to organize, hold events, maybe even raise a little money, get ready for the summer and develop a plan to just reach out. Politics is just about building relationships with people in your neighborhood. In this case, like who are in any way likely to either vote against the candidate you like or not vote at all. And so if you start now and just build up a group of people, start holding events, then you can together come up with a plan. And the most effective you could be is in your own neighborhood. I think along those same lines. So get involved. Yeah, definitely locally. Get way more strategic about your plan. Don't be so puritarian about everything. Like if you need to cross over and vote for Nikki Haley because it does damage to the guy that you don't want in the White House, get over yourself with all the, oh my God, I could never do that because I don't, I don't like her politics. You don't have to like her politics. It's about strategies. Do you have strategies in place? And are you willing to pursue your strategies in the same level with the same level of ruthlessness that the right is using on you? And the answer for many People in the resistance is no. Many of them can't bring themselves morally to do some of the same things. But if you want to save yourself, you're going to need a different level of aggression. First of all, involvement, what you just said is true. 100%. Get involved in as much as you possibly can. Give money to things. Give time to things that are part of the resistance and keep going. But you definitely are going to have to get strategic. And we're going to need more. We're going to need more people who understand campaigns actually doing more to get the rest of the people, the rest of us that are mere, mere morals and civilians aligned and doing things. The people I think it could do that most are unions, to be very honest with you. The most organized group uh, of people that can push back, that have infrastructure and budgets and methods and means for fighting big fights. And uh, I wouldn't have said this to you two years ago, like what I'm saying to you right now, uh, but they're the last line of defense in my mind. Even though many of us have had problems with them in epic battles, they are the most organized constituency of working class people that can fight back against some of this stuff that the elites are trying to push and trying to do, and including the social elites, not just the money elites, the monetary elites, but the social elites who want to install a program that will control all of us in ways that that really works for none of us. So get involved. That's my bottom line. Do you have uh, anything else that you want to add to this, Robbie? No, sir. Um, well, listen to all the listeners. We really appreciate you listening to the show. And if you've made it this far, all I can say to you is what I just said to you, get involved. Let's not just talk about these things, these plans that the right has to take over the United States. And they have very good plans for let's not just talk about it. Let's not just doom scroll. Let's think about how we resist, how we actually put our minds together, put our monies together, get involved and make something different happen. 
Appreciate you. We'll talk to you soon. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcasts at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show. 